This has been Stephen Bowden, a world-traveling tennis journalist, host of The Slice Tennis on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, all the social platforms, and Canadian tennis is where it's at. It's where you got to be in the next five to ten years. I think the biggest champions in the world are going to be coming from Canada, so it's going to be a great time to be a Canadian tennis fan. This is the Pro Sports Podcasters. Thanks for listening. We are the Pro Sports Podcasters, where no sport is left behind. It's time for another episode of the Pro Sports Podcasters with your hosts, Nee Wallace-Bruce, Colbert Durand, and Justin Williams. On this podcast, we have guests from all over the world covering every sport from artistic gymnastics to weightlifting. We are something for every sports fan on PSP. Whether your interests are the athletes playing the game, the coaches, or the media, we've got you covered. Fun and informative, honest and engaging. You won't want to miss a single episode. So let's kick this off. Welcome back to the Process Podcasters. I'm your co-host, Mr. Nee Wallace-Bruce, and I'm joined by Mr. Justin Williams. Justin, how's it going? Living the dream. How about you, boss? I'm not too bad. Not too bad at all. And we're also joined by the man himself, the myth, the legend. It is Mr. Kobe Durant, a.k.a. Kobe. Kobe, how you doing? Fantastic, buddy. Fantastic. Canada scored another goal today. Justin, you feeling, you feeling particularly German today or no? Nah, man. I'm actually uh, – all my teams got eliminated, so it's all right, though. I, when I saw the squad that was selected, I'm like, we're not getting out of the group stage. I think I told you guys that, too. Yeah. Uh, well, one thing that might lift your spirits, Justin, is the fact that in tennis, Canada won the Davis Cup last weekend for the first time in 109 years, the maiden victory for the program. So to help us talk about all that and more, it is – the reporter from the Slice Tennis, Stephen Boughton. Stephen, how are you going? I'm doing well. Thank you guys for having me and uh, letting me join in on the Toronto fun, the Toronto sports talk. Indeed. The East Coast connecting with the West Coast, which they say is the best coast. Now, Stephen, how did you get to where you are today? I started talking about tennis online uh, at the beginning of 2017. I've been a fan of tennis since maybe 2008 or 9, but I started my show, The Slice, on YouTube when Federer, Roger Federer was making his comeback at the beginning of 2017. And if you're not familiar with tennis, he ended up, he was 36, he was pretty old, and a lot of people thought he was totally done, but he was making one last kind of comeback to see if he could still play at a good level after some knee issues. And then he ended up just winning the whole Australian Open, beating his arch rival, Rafael Nadal, in the final match, coming from behind in the final set, you couldn't write a movie script in a more uh, epic way. And that kind of kicked off that season, which was an amazing season for him. And I was just making content on YouTube, talking about tennis every week. And uh, through that, we just gained more and more followers. So we've kind of just continued to do that and increase our production quality and gain more and more followers. So today where I'm doing this pretty much full-time and uh, I was actually able to travel through Europe for the last eight months following the tennis tour and being credentialed at a bunch of the tournaments over there and, and just reporting live from the from the ground and interviewing some of Canada's top players or basically all of Canada's top players uh, in person which was a really cool experience so it's kind of just been a general build-up through the last five or six years. Awesome. And just staying in that same vein, last weekend was a, a watershed moment for Canadian tennis. Take us through that and particularly some of the, the key players involved like Felix Auger, Ali Asim, Vasek Pospisil and Gabriel Diallo, among others. 
Yeah, the it was a watershed moment for Canada. It was their first ever Davis Cup victory, and as you mentioned before, they had been compete. They have been competing in the Davis Cup for 109 years. It's basically tennis is one of their oldest uh, tournaments, and it's the kind of international world championships or the World Cup of tennis you can think of it as. Um, so they'd made the final once or twice before, lastly in 2019, but this year they had a strong team with. Like you said, Felix Auger-Aliassime and Denis Shapovalov as the main two singles players. Uh, but Patrick Pospisil played a, a vital role in the doubles. And then, yeah, I'm surprised, not surprised, but, you know, D- Gabriel Diallo and Alexi Gallarneau were their two kind of uh, bench players that didn't get to play in the finals, but were a big moral support cheering on and losing their voice from the bench, which was, which was funny. But yeah, they had an amazing run through the three matches or the three ties that they played in the final almost losing in the first tie to Germany, almost losing in the second tie to Italy, and then kind of sweeping Australia. But I think Australia has won the Davis Cup 28 times, to put it in perspective. That's right. I only cut in because I was – sorry, I didn't mean to cut in, but I was – No, 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 go Australia. ahead. So, I yeah, – He's Australian, so. I grew up with – um. that was a staple of the, the calendar, seeing how okay. far the Australia would go in the Davis Cup back in the days of Pat Rafter and Leighton Hewitt. I know Leighton Hewitt's the captain nowadays – is the future bright now for Canadian tennis off the back of this victory? Yeah, absolutely. It was. I think it's it's been bright, and I think a lot of people have been talking about Canadian tennis for you know at least five years now. There, it started with Mila Saranac and Jeannie Bouchard getting pretty deep in some major tournaments and, and being big names on the world of tennis on the men's and women's side, and then Felix Auger Aliassime and Denis Shapovalov came along in kind of 2017, 2018, 2019 as these young players on the men's side who were super dynamic, super exciting. Just if you're Canadian or not, like most tennis experts around the world, you know, when they're asked about who's the most exciting players on the come up, most of them would say Shapovalov or Felix Auger-Aliassime, even if they weren't Canadian. And then Bianca Andreescu won the US Open mm-hmm. in her crazy breakout season of t- 2019. She was the first ever singles player to win a, a major title for Canada. So that was a huge, huge moment. And then Leila, Leila Fernandez made the final of the US Open uh, last year. So for a while now, I think Canada has been really bursting onto the scene as one of the most exciting tennis nations of the next five, 10 years. Uh, and I think that's absolutely the case. It's, you know, the Davis Cup shows that they're, you know, arguably the top country in pro tennis on the men's side, at least at the moment. So it's a pretty, pretty amazing time. And people are calling it the golden age of Canadian tennis. There we go. Onwards and upwards. I agree with him. I think it is a golden age of Canadian tennis. I think it is the strongest group of professional tennis players we've seen in Canada. And there is a a narrative that's shared amongst many of Nee's brethren that we didn't deserve to be there because we were actually eliminated by the Netherlands during qualifying. Yet, we're given that spot and we win it all. Do you think that narrative has any merit whatsoever? Exactly. Well, I heard Todd Woodbridge, who's a old, he's a Australian commentator. He, he put out some tweet like yesterday or the day before and he said, you know, it's an absolute disgrace at the Davis Cup has you know deteriorated into what it is and he said canada will always have an asterisk asterisk beside its victory this year and i and i responded to him and i said do you think he's like because they he was basically under the assumption or, or the assertion that canada should not have gotten a wild card and there was even andy roddick and i think leighton hewitt said something about you know it was weird that they got a wild card since they already lost but 
the lucky loser is a very common thing in tennis. In many tournaments, if there's somebody who loses in the qualifying round of a tournament, but then somebody pulls out of the tournament right before the draw starts, mm -hmm. the lucky loser waits around and can get inserted into the draw last minute. So, it's like a very common thing in tennis. And Canada was the highest ranked team who lost in that round in the qualifying there. So, they were the logical next choice. And then, in my opinion, you know, they clearly backed it up with being uh, included as they went on to beat every other team and win the entire event. So, clearly it looks like sour grapes coming from Todd Woodbridge. He got <laughs> he kind of got roasted for putting that out there yesterday. I'm still seeing traction with that on uh, Twitter today. He even made a follow-up post. He's like, I don't know why so many people are reacting. <laughs> it's like, well, because you look like a total sore loser. Like, your country's won it 28 times. Canada wins their first and you're trying to put an asterisk beside us, which is in the year of 2022, which is literally the year of asterisks in tennis with, you know, Djokovic not being allowed to play tournaments, mm -hmm. um, you know, Russians being banned from Wimbledon. Uh, the Davis Cup is like basically the least controversial tournament of the year so far. So, I'm not too too worried about what the Australians think uh, about Canada being in, the, in included. No, 100%. I'm sorry about that knee, but I just had to bring that up. And Stephen, I'm with you. I'm with you on that one. Now, now, Stephen, I get it that, you know, Canada's been on the come up for quite a few years now. And maybe that's why you're so invested and you put your all into following tennis. But, but why tennis? Why? Were you competitive at tennis at a young age or anything? Yeah, I was, um, I was kind of a late bloomer to tennis. Or I, I, I always watched like all sports growing up. And then I, I think around the like grade nine or 10, I was watching Federer play and I was like, you know what? That looks like a really fun sport to like play more competitively. And I wonder if there's like junior tournaments in my area. Like, could I play junior tennis? And I was like, I don't know anything about tennis. Like, are there even junior players? Like, could I just become, if I go play and I'm good enough, could I just go play like pro tennis? Like, I was pretty naive, obviously, as you typically are when you're like 15. But anyways, I joined our local club um, and just started playing and started to play regional tournaments. And quickly found out that there's a lot of really good young junior players and you know I got crushed a bunch of times but I did play you know at a decently competitive level and then I ended up actually playing college basketball in, in Calgary so tennis went on the back burner but it's always been my passion of mine I think as, as far as like a sport that I followed professionally it was the number one sport for for whatever reason so yeah that's it kind of I played it you know and I can play now at a fairly decent level so I feel confident like I understand how the game works and like how when you're watching rallies and you're watching players how they hit the ball I can I can understand how things work obviously and how different spins affect the ball and different types of strokes work and all that all the details of the mechanics of the game but I didn't play professionally or anything like that okay oh well, fair enough yeah I find it kind of funny how Canada is kind of known as like the soft country and we're so polite but the second we win we kind of support everyone and the second somebody kind of dogs at us we all bite back and he's like oh i don't know what, what Kennedy's are whatever oh, haven't you seen ice hockey anyway <laughs> yeah no no of course but i mean like if we lose we're like eh, it's it sucks but you know what it's it's whatever we have enough titles we're like the michael phelps of hockey when it comes to that sense mm, true like world juniors we haven't won like what two years and we're kind of not really caring about it because we have like <laughs> bernard coming up and we're like yeah he's fine he's fine Wait, let, let me just let me just give a an epilogue or just a footnote on what he, what Woody said. Um, oh no, here we go. Here comes the here comes the Australian side. Yep. <laughs> no, no. Oh, crikey. No, no. Um, <laughs> no, no. Congratulations to Canada. They deserve to win. I'm I'm not going to get into that. The the lucky losers thing. I'm I'm familiar with tennis tournaments. It's a very uh, commonplace thing. Like like Stephen said, if the highest ranked eliminated competitor can come back in, that's 
I got no issue with that. I think I think Woodbridge is coming from a place of frustration, given that Australian tennis has been in the doldrums for the past ten to fifteen years after the golden generation retired. Finally got back up to that level. Still can't convince Nick Kyrgios to play. Yeah. Uh, which probably didn't help. But yeah, just falling short, he's probably just coming from an emotional uh place of frustration. My one quick question for I throw back to Justin is the Davis Cup has had a corporate influence come through in the last year or so and the format's changed. So no, again, I'm not trying to put an asterisk on anything, but do you think the Davis Cup is viewed differently because of the the way the format's changed with that uh change of administration, Stephen? I think the yeah, that's a good point. It has changed drastically with the format. It used to and I Leighton Hewitt after the loss was asked, he didn't bring it up, he was asked about the format and he said, you know, it's probably not the right time to talk about it. We just lost like but for example, Australia has, I think, you know, basically the best doubles team in the world, two Australian guys mm. on their team, and they never got to play in the final against Canada, right? So, because it was mm-hmm. just two singles matches and then a doubles if needed. So, it's a best two out of three scenario, basically. Whereas it used to be, I forget actually what it was. I think it was like three singles matches the first day, then a doubles match, and then like two singles matches the last day. So, like you had a bunch of matches and the doubles were an important part of it. But now, in Canada's first two matches, they went to a deciding doubles match. They basically call it both times. And Canada won that um, both times. But then, you know, if they had gone to a deciding doubles against Australia, we probably would have lost. But his mm. point was that if you're if the Davis Cup is about comparing the tennis greatness of two countries, we just got to decide, is doubles valued or not? Because, like, in the way that it went down between Canada and Australia, doubles didn't get to play apart and that would have australia was strongest in their doubles not in their singles but the two matches that go first are singles so it's uh it is controversial but you know the obviously the new owners want to make it more tv friendly viewer friendly like these these ties would kind of slog on for like three days in a row mm. um we're now in like a matter of four or five days you have basically four or six or seven whole ties completed and uh i guess you can get it like a general sense of who's the better tennis country in these three matches but it definitely does leave you know something to be be desired without the devils being able to make an impact so i understand kind of all the frustration it's definitely the older generation who's tied to the old format who's pointing the frustration i think someone who's kind of just paid attention to davis cup a little bit more in the last years like the format to me doesn't bother me and it gets it done quicker it's still a long day like these ties still Mm -hmm. go like six or seven or eight hours so, it's not great for the casual fan to watch. Only kind of tennis hardcore people are going to watch, I think. But that's a big co- topic of conversation these days in tennis is changing the format to make it uh, more interesting to the general audience. But, you know, my quick opinion on that is I don't, I don't see any other major sport that has fundamentally changed their format in order to attract more viewers. Um, well, wait for the FIFA World Cup in 2026. <laughs> no, yeah. but um, I, I hear what you're saying, Stephen. And just to wrap up, so that our audience is fully across this, uh, I guess, storm in a, in a teacup. Uh, Todd Woodbridge is Australia's best ever doubles player. So now you know <laughs> why he's so frustrated. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that, mate. I had no idea. I love that little history lesson, that crash course in, in tennis there. BetUS Sportsbook is your ultimate destination for online betting. With sports betting, live betting, racebook, online slots, and online casino. It's available across the U.S. and Canada. Use the code PSP to receive a massive sign-up bonus. 
after everything that's all said and done with, with the tournament, do you feel like Canada is going to have more pressure on them going into the next international tennis tournament or again, the next Davis Cup? Yeah, you know, I think there's always a bit of uh, pre- more pressure as the defending champ. So it'll be interesting to see how Canada reacts to that. Again, like I think with Felix now as t- number six in the world, probably going to increase on that next year. That would be the goal. Uh, and then Shapovalov as the, as the one-two punch. That's really dangerous for any country out there. It doesn't matter if Djokovic is playing for Serbia or Nadal is playing for Spain, which he wasn't this year. They're still going to have a good chance against anyone. So, yeah, I think they'll feel more pressure. Definitely. It's always, I think in tennis, it's a universal truth. Basically, it's easier to pay, play as the underdog than the champion, than the person who's expected to win because tennis is just such a difficult technically sport to play. So, any amount of tightness in the body or any pressure that you might be under can really affect players and it doesn't matter who you are. So, I think Canada will have more pressure on them, but I think that'll feed into their energy potentially and maybe even make them play better. Nice. I mean, sometimes pressure does wonders, sometimes it makes people crumble. I don't know. I'd like to see Canada kind of prevail. I think it'd be great if we prevailed the second time in the same way. So, like the lucky loser kind of deal. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like it would set all Australia media blaze. <laughs> could happen. Honestly, it could happen. <laughs> I think Australian media is probably more consumed with the upcoming game against Argentina in the FIFA World Cup, the men's World Cup. Just saying. Just oh, saying. no, 100%. <laughs> I, I totally, I would be too. Honestly, if my teams were still in, I'd be kind of more concerned about that. But I have nobody to really root for now at this point. So bring on curling, as I say. No, it's um like Kobe and Steven, yourself both said, it is a golden age for Canadian tennis. On the women's side, the team kind of made the, I guess, the finals of the Billie Jean King Cup. They did fall early in that tournament in Scotland, but the future does look bright. What what's your take on the um King Canada and the women's side of things? Yeah, so I was actually in Glasgow there on, on the ground at that tournament. And yeah, they had, you know, similar almost like a, they had a similar when we were talking about the Davis Cup team at the beginning, you know, all the players, they actually didn't do a, a pre tournament press conference, the men, which was good, but after the first match, you know, they felt like this was their strongest ever team and they felt like they had a good chance to win it. And so a lot of the commentators were saying before the tournament, you know, they're the favorites maybe even to win the whole Davis Cup. And people are saying the similar, a similar thing for the Billie Jean King Cup with Bianca Andreescu showing up for it and Layla Fernandez. So, it was actually Layla was number one, Bianca was number two. That's a really good one-two punch. Um, and then they had, you know, one of the top doubles players in the world, Gabrielle Dabrowski, as uh, as one of the doubles players. So, and then Rebecca Marino in there as well. So that was a real, that's a really good team. And they just came out, they just didn't perform at their best in the, in the second match of that tournament. They beat, I forget who it was now in the first round or in their first match, but in the group stage, but then they lost to Switzerland. So Bianca Andreescu lost to somebody ranked lower than her, Golovic, who's a tough player who played very well. I was at that match. It was just a really hard fought battle and Bianca lost. And then Leila Fernandez lost to Belinda Bencic who is a great player and that you can't really falter for that. So then they went out to, to Switzerland basically. And then Switzerland went on to win the entire thing. So some people take that as a consolation, but they just kind of under, it was, it was a tough competition. I don't think they were as big of favorites as uh, the men were at the Davis cup um, at all. But you know, the, even the team was talking in their pre tournament press conference. They're saying this is the best team we've ever had. Uh, we have high hopes for this week. And uh, tennis Canada sent like, probably 20 to 30 of its own staff over there to basically cheer on the team, um, which you can do the math on how much that would cost. 
they were there for the whole week and then they lost in, in the group stages, which was definitely disappointing. So, yeah, they have a good chance to, I think, win the Billie Jean King Cup in the, in the future if this group stays together, if they keep showing up for the country. You know, Bianca's won a major. Layla's been one match away from it. So, they can, they can beat basically anyone on tour. And if they can both get hot at the same time, then I think they can really make a good run for it. All right. Watch with a sense of anticipation. Yeah, and in our brief discussion so far, you've mentioned Federer's name a, a number of times. I'm taking it you're a, a big Roger Federer fan. Yeah, I was. Or, yeah, because he's retired now. I, I still am. I, I, I really loved his game. I loved the way he carried himself. And, yeah, I just thought the way that he played Dennis was the best way to play it and uh, definitely the best way to watch it. So, yeah, I was a huge fan of Federer. Now, there was a, I don't know, I, I I guess you could say almost 20 year span where you've had three primary figures in the men's game and that's Nadal, Federer and Djokovic. Do you think it's good for tennis now that these guys are maybe slowly moving on? Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know if it's good for tennis. I I know like depends what you mean by good for tennis. Does that mean like if it's is it going to grow the game that they're moving on? Correct. Probably not. Um it I don't think you can really replicate the energy and the awe that that it brought or when these three guys were battling out in the final of slams like they played i don't know the three of them have played each other in the final of slams you know i think over like like around like 40 to 60 times in the last 20 years well they've each won more than 20 they've won 20 21 and 22 in the last 20 years which is just insane right so when history is on the line, history is being played for every time these guys enter a tournament or play each other in the semifinals or a final. I think that buzz is uh, almost unmatchable in tennis. So I think it that took tennis in general, along with like Serena Williams and how big she was in the US, they took tennis to new heights as far as popularity and as far as like total money in the game. For example, like the numbers are crazy. I think if you won the US Open in 2003, you would get like 800 grand or something. And now if you win it, you get like three and a half million. And like if you lose in the first round of the US Open, you get $80,000. So they've just taken it from, you know, 800,000 for the winner to now like three and a half million. And then that's also brought up the money on the women's side to equal as well. So they made the game so big and so broad. I do think tennis will lose some of the casual following that it has because People in sports in general just love tuning in when history is about to be made, I think. Mm-hmm. And you ask any random sports fan, they're all going to know who Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic are. But the only other player that they, a lot of these general fans, are, like if it's just like an NFL fan or something, they might know Nick Kyrgios. But then they don't know guys like Felix. They don't know guys like Alcaraz really as much or Casper Ruud or these next generation stars. So it's going to be a trimming of the fat, I think, for when it comes to tennis, but it's an opportunity for tennis to grow deeper with the audience that already has. And then, you know, really bring in, you know, the people that come to tennis are going to come and love it because of the sport and not necessarily because of these like icons of like sporting history that are walking amongst us, you know, if, you, if that makes any sense. No, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I was, I was more of a fan of tennis previous to the Federer era. I, I'm not really a fan of Federer. I appreciate what he's accomplished. Fair enough, yeah. But I found it stale during that time because there was only X number of top players to really watch. I feel mm-hmm. personally that it gives you an opportunity to develop a larger number of stars versus just the three. That's how I see it. 
Absolutely. And, I, you know, as a, obviously a hardcore tennis fan myself, I get excited for the future and I, I'm ready for it to change. Like I've been ready for it for three or four years. It probably should have changed earlier, but the next generation is just not as mentally tough as these legends. So they've had a hard time really knocking them off the top. But I do think going forward in the next five, 10 years, you're going to see a group of like five to 10 players that are always competing for the title, the major titles, which to me is a little more exciting or it's just a different type of exciting for me. I did obviously find it exciting watching, you know, who was going to win this tournament, Djokovic, Nadal, or Federer, like who's going to rise to the top. But now it's going to be a different group. And when somebody wins, like Alcaraz just won the US Open, you know, that feels like something brand new. He was the first time winner. It's amazing to see somebody new, like get to that level in their Mm -hmm. career. So I know what you mean. Like to me, it's going to be more exciting. Um, And I hope that, you know, I think these young guys can step up and like become the big stars that tennis kind of needs to keep it at the level it's at. One more question before I pass you back to me. Um, given the the science behind tennis now, the the levels of fitness that these players have reached, will we ever see serve and volley be a thing again, or is that just done? I think it's done for sure. Like the the way that it used to be, I don't. I think it's done. There's there's actually a couple of players now who who are in the top like fifty who do it basically regularly and that would be like Maxime Cressy of the United States and Oscar Atta he's a little bit lower he might be like 60 or 70 in the world but he does that quite a bunch but I don't see either of those guys really you know being stalwarts in the top 20 so I think serve and volley where guys are coming to the net you know 75 percent of the match I think that's gone but I do think there is still the opportunity to play an all-court game for a while there, it really went away and Federer was one of the only players still playing like an all-court game. Mm-hmm. But as Djokovic and, and Nadal have both gotten older, you know, you can basically end points quicker by coming to the net. So, they've both gotten elite at coming to the net and they do that quite a bit more now than they used to. And then there's players like Felix Auger-Aliassime, for example, and Shapoval. They're both quite solid at the net now and they really are aggressive players, meaning that when I, whenever they can take advantage in a rally, they're going to hit big and then come to the net to finish off the point. So, and Alcaraz is the same, super comfortable coming forward. So, there's a lot of good players, young players now who are really coming forward a lot. Whereas, you know, I feel like between like 2010 to like 2017, really the tennis was played from the baseline of the majority and it got a little monotonous. I think people knew that, saw that, but I think now with, like you're right, with the fitness, the level of fitness and athleticism that these players have, you can play from the baseline and it's safer too, but you know, you can gain a competitive advantage for sure if you are able to come forward and, and take the rally to the opponent because you know that's just that's how a tennis court is set up. Like you if you can just make it smaller on your side, uh, it's usually gonna play in your advantage if you know what you're doing. So basically you see it as more of a tactical move mid rally versus a dedicated strategy these days. Definitely. Like it, it like it ha- you see it every once in a while. Like for example, Djokovic served in volley volleyed like a ton against Medvedev last year in the ATP in the ATP finals because I think he lost to or yeah he, he lost to Medvedev in the US Open and Medvedev would stand really far back on the return like five or six steps behind the baseline mm-hmm. in the US Open and Djokovic lost so then the next time they played Djokovic just served and volleyed basically half the time so by the time the ball got to Medvedev who was way behind the baseline Djokovic was at the net and then had the clear advantage. So, and it worked perfectly and he won the next time they played. So, there's going to be cases like that, but I think it's, it's more of a, 
you should be able to get to the net and finish points as a general part of your game, but I don't think it's a it's going to be an overarching strategy that players use going to, into the future. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, now staying with the future, we've got the Australian Open coming up in less than two months. You mentioned Rude Alcaraz, some names of, I guess, the, the next gen. What are some other names we should be looking out for, both the men's and the women's draws? Well, I think the, you know, Djokovic is, I think, going to be the favorite on the men's side for sure. He didn't, wasn't able to play last year, so he's coming for it, I think, hard this year. Nadal's going to be there. But players like Sitsipas is somebody that I always look for. He gets, he's had a, t- he had a weird year this year, but he won a lot, but he didn't do as well as he probably should have or could have at the majors. Yeah, you got Felix Algeliasim is going to be a contender for sure. I don't think Rude is actually a contender, but Alcaraz definitely will be as the number, world number one player. He's going to be looking to kind of back that up. Zverev is going to be coming back from injury. He'll be there. Medvedev is, you know, US Open winner of 2021. He's going to be looking to get back on top. He was in the final the last two years at the Australian Open, losing to Nadal and Djokovic. So, just from what you can see, there's a bunch of guys who are in the mix there on the men's, which makes it super exciting to me. And then on the women's side, yeah, it's it's wide open again. Caroline Garcia ended the year winning the WTA finals in Texas, which was big for her. She came from like number 60 in the world uh, in like May, I think, to ending the world as the top 10 for sure, uh, top eight for sure, and winning the whole final. So, she's going to be dangerous but on the women's side there's so many there's like almost like a group of 20 who could who can challenge for any given major so you know i would look at bianca andrescu as a and 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 leila fernandez the canadians to potentially make good runs they definitely have the talent too emirata canu who won the us open in 2021 she's trying to get uh, her ranking back up after losing all those points um there's so many storylines on the women's that is that are exciting so um yeah everywhere you're going to look in the draw it's going to be exciting players to to keep an eye on yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, Serena Williams will go down as the greatest tennis player ever. She was dominant. I don't know if she comes back, but her absence definitely, yeah, it, it really opens things up. And I think it'll open up eyes in terms of uh, the casual fans' perception of who else is out there, you know? People aren't going to be seen as potential also-rans. So, um, looking forward to seeing that. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm, I, it's been, and it's been like that for, a number of years, right? Because Serena has not been dominating since really like 2016, 17. So for the last number of years, we've seen a lot of different winners of slams on the on the women's side and a lot of different, you know, the, the draws just being super open because the, I think the general talent pool is, is so good on the WTA now. And it's, there's all the way like one through 100, basically, you're getting amazing players who can all kind of beat each other. So yeah, her not being at the top of the game anymore and definitely her being like uh, quasi-retired, like there was that big retirement ceremony for her, but now she's like, Maybe she'll come back. I think she likes the attention <laughs> and she likes mm. being in the, in the headlines. So we'll see. But um, yeah, no, the women's game is, is wide open as well, which is exciting. Fantastic. I, th- I feel like she took some notes from Tom Brady. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so um, this is a question that uh, I always ask all of our guests. And since you're Canadian, I figured you probably have. But uh, have you ever had a poutine before? Yes, I have. Many times. And what is your poutine of choice? I don't know. Well, I don't even really know. I, I don't think poutine's as as common out here on the West Coast or it's not as big of a thing, but I just do like the basic, like French fries, uh, gravy, and the cheese curds. Yeah, just the three. Can't go wrong with the classic. We like to add it up. Kobe likes to do some like weird thing with his, I don't know. Yeah, like what do you guys put on it? It's not weird. It's bacon. I had bacon. Yeah, bacon's weird. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty normal. Yeah, it's Canadian. It's Canadian. 
I, I can't do it. I can't put bacon on my poutine. It's already salty enough with the gravy and the cheese, and this guy's just adding more sodium to it. I'm like, I just can't do it. Yeah. And murder my soul. Uh, yeah. Knee likes to add some type of jambalaya rice or something to it. I'm not sure what he does. Some room meat. <laughs> wow. <laughs> which one's more salty? Kobe's poutine or Todd Woodbridge? I don't know which one's more salty right now. <laughs> can, we, can we clip that for the promo of this? <laughs> yeah. It was fun. It was good talking to you, buddy. Thanks, guys, for having me. I appreciate it a lot. No worries. Cheers, mate. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. For even more of your favorite sports content, be sure to visit the website, www.prosportspodcasters.com. On our website, you will find our sports blog, full podcast library, access to our YouTube channel, and deals from our affiliate partners. You can also sign up to become a PSP Insider and get exclusive access to our insider tips, sponsor giveaways, and insider newsletter. So don't miss out on the full Pro Sports Podcasts experience. Where no sport is left behind.